Alrighty folks, and welcome to the Chronicler Podcast channel. Episode 6, Noteworthy Characters of the Shan. Last week, I did mention the first Shan king, Zilu, who later became known as Tang of Shan. Tang reigned from 1675 until 1646 BC. Now, all scholars would agree that some stories about Tang may be a little exaggerated. But in saying that, all would agree that he was certainly a caring man who was benevolent as well as ambitious. Now, put all of these together and you could see the recipe for a military overthrow of the current ruling dynasty. A confrontation was inevitable. It was a matter of when and not if. To highlight his kind-heartedness, there is a story about Tang of Shang after the overthrow of the Xia. And that story goes a little something like this. So the people were suffering from starvation as a result of a drought. To appease the heavens and the ancestors, Tang ordered the sacrifice of not an animal, but a person. And all of this was based on the advice of an astronomer who said that sacrificing an animal was not enough. A person was needed to appease heaven. Now, you would think this was a great time to find someone who was a little, you know, unstable and tell them that they are going to be doing a great deed for the country. But no, Tang, being the selfless man that he was, volunteered himself for the sacrifice. And... He said the following. I am praying for rain for for the the sake sake of my my subjects. subjects. If we have have to sacrifice sacrifice a man man to heaven, heaven, I will volunteer volunteer to to be the sacrifice. sacrifice. Next, Tang took a bath, abstained from meat in his diet, trimmed his hair and nails, which is a big deal by the way, and drove a white horse carriage wearing a white coarse linen robe with a white belt to the altar at the Mulberry Grove. Tang then said his prayers inside the grove, and he said the following. The fault fault is mine 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 alone. alone. Please, Please, do not not punish punish my my subject. subject. If my my subject had done anything anything wrong wrong that that might contribute to the drought, drought, I I must be the root root cause for their their wrongdoings. Heaven and go spirit, please do not hurt my subject, because I failed to guide them properly, due to my insufficient capability. Next, Tang rebuked himself for six minutes and said, Was the drought caused by any lack of law and order in my administration? Was it because I had been oblivious to my subjects, hardships, and because I failed to fulfil their expectations? Was the drought caused caused by any any corruption corruption of the the government government officials that that I was not aware of? of? Did Did I waste waste any money or manpower manpower building an imperial imperial palace on a large large scale? scale? Did Did I employ employ corrupt corrupt and malicious malicious government government officials officials and take take their their bad bad advice? advice? By the time Tan finished his self-reflection, it began to pour within several thousand miles of the altar. Now, of course, to say it rained as soon as he stopped speaking seems highly unlikely. But, you know, sometimes it's good to fantasise and think this truly did happen. 
there are other acts of kindness I can get into, but for the sake of time, I won't. I think one story is enough to highlight the role Tang played with his people. And this offer to sacrifice himself to heaven probably set the path for future Shang kings to become the religious heads of state as well. I need to mention as well that Tang unknowingly started a tradition throughout Chinese history, and that was the tradition of military overthrow of an unjust or weak dynasty, and replacing it with a new order. That is a theme you will always see throughout this show. The Chinese say their history is always a cycle, and that nothing is permanent, and in a way it kind of is. But regardless, Tang started off the Shang Dynasty with great governance and stability. Who would have known that it would last 600 years, lasting from 1600 BC right up until 1046 BC? A dynasty which would be ruled by 31 different kings? But that's exactly what happened. Now of course, I'm not going to nitpick my way through all of the kings, because that is just absolutely tedious, and I think it would bore my audience to death. Now, if you do want to know about every individual Shang ruler throughout the 600 years, then be my guest. But I will warn you now, it'll be an even bigger hole than the one I have dug for myself. Now, that's all fine and well with Tang. But what about his great advisor? And yes, he did have a great advisor. And he relied on this man more than anybody else probably more than himself, to be honest. And his name is Yi Yin, and I'll say it again, just because when I pronounce it, it does sound like I'm saying one name, but it's actually two. Yi Yin. And he deserves an honorary mention, to say the least. Now, how Tang came across Yi Yin is rather extraordinary. He wasn't a scholar or anything like that, but in fact a slave. He was born in the year 1649 BC, and he died at around 1550 BC. Now apparently, Yi Yin was abandoned after he was born. He was found in an open field by his adoptive mother, a slave who was collecting mulberry leaves. Yi Yin grew up as a slave too, and inherited his adoptive father's occupation as a chef in the noble family's kitchen. As time progressed, it was clear that Yi Yin was wise and insightful, and many of the nobility themselves asked him for advice. Yi Yin's master then married who would later be called, you guessed it, Tang Shan. Now apparently, Tang actually had no idea of Yi Yin's talents initially, but that all changed when Yi Yin purposefully cooked him the wrong meals. And after a lengthy discussion, Tang realised his mistake, and quickly made Yi Yin his top advisor. He even called him master sometimes. Tang consulted Yi Yin's opinion on pretty much every single big affair within his domain. Sometimes Yi Yin gave suggestions derived from his cooking techniques. He advised Tang one time that ruling a dynasty dynasty is just just like like cooking. It won't, it won't be, be good, good if you put, put too much, much salt, salt or too, or too little, little salt. salt. The seasoning, the seasoning you, you add should be modest. Ruling a dynasty, dynasty 
You cannot, you cannot be too, too fast, fast nor too, too slow. slow. Only, Only by, by grasping the sequence of order, order for everything, everything can manage all things in order. order. In this, in this way, way, you will, you be, will be a good, a good king. king. Really well and warmly welcomed, welcomed by your by people. people. Now, I never thought I'd hear a quote which compares ruling a kingdom to cooking, but here we are. The thing about Yin as well is that he was the one who convinced Tang to rebel in the first place. It was his idea. It was Yi Yin who made the connections between the Shang state and other disgruntled vassals of the Xia. It was Yi Yin who bribed Xia officials for information which Tang could use. In other words, Tang could never have overthrown the Xia if it wasn't for Yi Yin. So naturally, when Tang formed the new dynasty, in 1600 BC, Yi Yin was the Prime Minister, the first man to get such a high office within a dynasty. Now, after Tang's death, Yi Yin still lived. And he actually lived through another two generations of the family line. Some of the early reigns didn't last long by the way, so don't think that he was alive for like 200 years. That didn't really happen. It's just that these were very short reigns after Tang's death. But then, we have this Shang king called Tai Jia as a new ruler. And he has an old prime minister to help him out. Now, Tai Jia actually began to behave like Jia of the Xia. He was discarding the rules of state, and he liked drinking in women more than governance. Yi Yin could see through this, and he used his powers as the Prime Minister and exiled Tai Jia to his ancestor's grave, Tang Shang of course. There he had to repent for his actions, and after his exile was completed, he came back and was a changed man. And again, this is thanks to Yi Yin. The early dynasty pretty much owed everything to this guy. <laughs> like, everything! <sighs> but then of course, Yi Yin would die and the Shang would enjoy a very long time of stability as a result of Yi Yin's actions. So of course he has to get a mention. Now then, we are going to skip a few generations forward and we are going to enter the tale of the King Wu Din and his favourite concubine, Fu Hao. Wu Din was actually the 21st king of the Shang, according to the historian Sima Qian, who was alive during the Han Dynasty, by the way. So, you know, 2,000 years later, or something like that. The time frame we are talking about here is 1324 until 1266 BC. Wu Din is actually known as one of the best Shang kings of the entire dynasty. And this is partly due to his concubine, Fu Hao, but she doesn't deserve all the glory. Wu Ding himself was wise, kind, and used his subordinates to the best of their ability, regardless of their gender. The result was a massive expansion of Shang territory, and the Han culture spread through what we call China today. He even helped in the advancement of medicine and the Chinese calendar. Now, there is an example of him being a wise man, and that is, when he was young, his father sent him out of the palace so he could experience the lives of the normal citizens. And he experienced these hardships when nobody else knew who he actually was. Therefore, 
when he did become the king, he had ideas on how to help the lives of the ordinary citizens and implemented them rather well. People had more food because he implemented a grain storage policy, which created surpluses. This was good news for the Shang subjects because it meant that they didn't have to worry when a drought came along. They had their storages. As well as this, he implemented a policy which saw him not just have one wife, but 60. Yes, 60 wives. Now please keep in mind that he didn't get divorced 60 odd times, you know, that would put the record of Henry VIII to shame, but no, he had all 60 wives all at once. One may begin to ask, why did he do this? Surely one wife is enough, and I certainly think so. But this policy ensured the continued loyalty of the vassal states of the Shan, which in turn brought peace and stability within the kingdom. So the policy was actually rather ingenious when you think of it, and it did get implemented by later Shan kings and even later dynasties. And it is here that we enter the story of Fu Hao. Fu Hao was born in the year 1278 BC and in the northern reaches of the Shang Empire at the time, which is modern-day Hebei province. And even though she would later become known as a warrior, she didn't start her life as a peasant or a slave or anything like that. It was rather the contrary. She was born as a princess and was suited to the future king of the Shang, Wu Ding. Some sources say that she was his first wife, whilst others say she was the third. But I really don't think it matters when you consider that the king had 60 wives in total. But anyway, back to Fu Hao. So Fu Hao is actually an amazing person to actually look at. So for starters, she was the first woman in Chinese history to become a military strategist and a female warrior. Evidence of this is in her tomb, as well as on the oracle bones. Now this is significant because now we have genuine primary sources written at around the same time she was alive. So we know that she actually existed and we know her deeds. And as well as that, we also have archaeological evidence because the tomb was found. Now I hope one could really understand the importance of these incredible objects which tell these stories. So where is the archaeological evidence? It's in Fu Hao's tomb in Anyang, and that is one of the old Shang capitals, and it is in today's modern Henan province. The tomb was found in 1976 by a woman archaeologist called Zhong Zhenxiang, who stumbled across the tomb by accident. The tomb itself is the first one ever dedicated to a woman in such a manner, which of course highlights her importance. So what made her so important? Well, like I said, she was a military strategist. And here's an example of how she did so well in battles. So the Shang were fighting a tribe called the Qianfang in the northern spheres of Shang influence. And it was a bit of a stalemate. No side could get the upper hand. It was here Fu Hao asked her husband, the King Wu Ding, to go and fight herself. Wu Ding was of course apprehensive about this, so he asked a shaman to perform a divination ceremony with the oracle bones. 
the ancestor's answer was very, very clear indeed. And that answer was yes, Fu Hao should go and fight. So afterwards, Wu Ding then sent Fu Hao to go and win the war, which she did rather easily. From what I can tell, this was Fu Hao's first war, and it certainly wasn't her last. Sources state that during the war with the Qianfang tribe, Fu Hao managed to muster over 13,000 men to her command, and this was at a time of when armies consist of about a thousand men each. This was a huge number. And again, this symbolises her intelligence to be able to organise so many men at such an early time in history, and it symbolises how much power Fu Hao actually had, and of course the faith that the king had in her to lead such a large number of men for the time. After the defeat of the Qiangfan tribe, King Wu Din then sent Fu Hao on military campaigns across the Shang Empire, and get this, she defeated and annexed over 20 tribes into Shang influence. That is a huge number for one person. Now to be honest, I think that kinda puts Mulan's record to shame, don't you? Now, it wasn't as if Wu Ding simply sent Fu Hao to fight his wars for him. At around the city of Xiangqiu, which is in, again, modern-day Hunan province, an attack came from a tribe known as the Ba Feng. Wu Ding and Fu Hao then marched to Xiangqiu to lead the defence of the city. After arriving at the battlefield, Wu Ding decided to launch an assault in the middle of the night but Fu Hao didn't join him. Instead, she quietly left the front lines. Now, alone, Wu Ding led a fierce charge against Ba Feng's forces. Ba Feng's front lines were broken. They fled from Wu Ding's pursuing forces and eventually arrived at a quiet valley. So now, they were thinking they might have been safe, they're out of danger, but before the Bafeng army could catch their breath, Shang flags emerged from the top of a valley. There were two large characters written on the flags. You guessed it, they said Fu Hao. Now faced with the enemy soldiers on both sides, Bafeng's troops were thrown into disarray. Before long, the whole army was wiped out. Now the queen, was the first general in China's written history to apply ambush tactics in war. What an achievement! Not only did she annex 20 new territories for the Xiong, but she also developed a new style of warfare at the time. After this particular conflict, the territory of the Bafeng was annexed by the Xiong, and the Xiong's territory expanded even further towards the coast of the Yellow Sea. Now, would Fu Hao continually conquer new territories and create more vassals for the central state? Unfortunately, no. Fu Hao died very young, at the age of 33 in 1245 BC. Now there are conflicting arguments about her death. Some say she died from exhaustion, with her life constantly at war, or perhaps in combat, whilst others say she died giving birth to Wu Ding's child. Now how do we know this? Through the Oracle Bones, of course. Again, like I said, now you can appreciate their total value. 
Willie Dean was, as you could imagine, devastated by Fulhal's death. Even though he had 60 wives, Fulhal was by far his favourite, and it's pretty clear to see why. She was, by all accounts, a beautiful woman, and she was a warrior, and she was a shaman, and above all, she was loyal to the king throughout her life. He was so distraught that he built a massive, elaborate tomb for her. So remember it got discovered? Well, this is the list of objects that were found in her tomb. 755 jade carvings, 564 bone objects, including nearly 500 bone hairpins and over 20 bone arrowheads, 468 bronze objects, 63 stone objects, 5 ivory objects, 11 pottery objects, 6,900 pieces of cowrie shell, and that was what the Shang used as currency, 16 human sacrifices, 6 dogs, and 2 horses. Now, a couple of such items was a massive bronze owl, as well as a jade carving of a bird. But from that list of items, I think it is very, very, very clear that Wu Dean thought extremely highly of her. Wu Dean missed her so much, even years after her death, that before a battle, he would have his entire army and family pray to her, hoping she would watch over them and guarantee a victory. But for Wu Dean, a tomb and the odd prayer simply wasn't enough. He posthumously married her to not just one Shang King, but at least three to four. That's a huge deal. Usually one is enough, but three to four? Again, this emphasises how he regarded her, and it seems he wanted to really be sure she would be taken care of after her death. This is an ancient Chinese practice, and it is called Mein Huin. This practice actually still exists even today, but in remote parts of China. So for example, if a couple are engaged, then something tragic happens, like a car accident or something. The families of the bride and the groom usually agree to marry them posthumously. That way, they have each other in the afterlife. I suppose that you could argue that Wu Ding and his lovely concubine were the pinnacle of the dynasty. And it is very easy to see why. Wu Ding ruled the Shang dynasty for 58 years, between the years 1324 and 1266 BC. Now, I was planning on moving on to the last Shang King, but I feel like I've went way over my usual time limit. I usually try to aim for like 15 minutes, and currently I'm on minute 24. So for the sake of time, I am not going to talk about the last Shang King, and I'm going to save that particular story for next week. Now, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I'm looking forward to seeing you next time on the Chronicler Podcast channel. Thanks for listening.